Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, Scott Patsko back at you after the bye week for the Cleveland Browns, who are 5-3 and three, heading into this home game on Sunday against the Houston Texans. We are doing big issues around the Browns. We do half the show led by Scott, half the show led by Ellis. We're doing it a little bit different. Again, the bye week is a great time to reset. So we usually dig in on kind of one big issue with each guy on numbers and film. We're doing three things. Each guy's going to take three separate things, two surprises about this Brown season and one expected thing about this Brown season. And again, it's going to just reset everything as the Browns get ready to make what they hope is a playoff push here in the second half of the year. We'll start with Ellis. So Ellis Williams dive in on got to watch the tape. All right, listeners, so bear with me here. My first surprise is one that maybe more of a, a mission that I may have uh, misread the backfield coming into this season. I know on Brown's Twitter, y'all go crazy for Nick Chubb prior to this year for what he's meant to this team uh, since the Browns drafted him. But my first surprise for me as I evaluate this offense, and I think it's important to know that when you inval- evaluate these teams, you have to do it year by year. So when I perceived Nick Chubb's value in this offense, I wasn't thinking about what he did with Fred or Hugh Jackson or Freddie Kitchens. It was how he was going to be used with Kevin Stefanski. And for that reason, I just saw Kareem Hunt as the more valuable asset, but Browns fans, boy, was I wrong for me. My first surprise is just how much Nick Chubb has meant to the value of this Browns offense. The first way I, I think we can paint this picture in a few different ways. First, I want to go over rushing totals. Uh, then I'll break down percentage of carries with and without Chubb. Um, I think an ex- a very important part of this is going to be the explosive run counts. We're going to get into what this team was like pre-Chubb, pre-Nick Chubb, post-Nick Chubb injury, and then just some PFF grades to wrap it up. So first, let's start with the rushing totals. Um, in week one versus the Ravens, the, Brown, the Browns ran for 138 yards. Week two versus the Bengals, 215 then week three in Chubb's last full game, 158 yards in those games. First week, 72 yards for Nick Chubb. Second week, 22 carries, 124 yards. Third week, 108 yards. And then you get into the games without Nick Chubb. So first in week four, when he's still there, of course, the Browns' best rushing game of the year, week four versus the Cowboys, 307 yards. Important to keep in mind that in that game, Odell Beckham Jr. had 73 rushing yards. That's not happening again this year. Ernest Johnson, 95 rushing yards. Doug was on this from the jump. Doug, you think that's happening again this year? 
No, 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 no. Oh, the Texans are bad against the run, guys. I mean, this is if this is going to happen again, it's this week. That's all I'm saying. Is that what we're previewing Scott's second half of the podcast? Scott's just preview saying. is Dearness Johnson breaks out again. Don't, don't sleep on the on the futility of the Texans' uh, run defense. That's all I'm saying. All right, so I guess we won't dead Dearness Johnson just yet. But Doug, you were pretty dang right that Dearness Johnson was not going to be a guy to replace Nick Chubb. I, again, I can admit on the wrong side of that. I thought we'd see more of Johnson and I thought they'd protect Kareem Hunt more. They didn't do that either. We'll get into that in a bit, but where I'm going with this um, week, five hundred twenty-four yards rushing. And then for back-to-back weeks in week six and week seven, the Browns don't even break a hundred yards rushing. You get 75 and 82. And then what I think is important to keep in mind here is the percentage of carries throughout those those four games. So essentially you have four games with Nick Chubb, four games without. So not only are the Browns rushing yards dipping, they're the number one team in rushing, and then they're dipping to a team that can't even total 100 yards in a game to the percentage of carries. In weeks one, two, and three, respectively, Nick Chubb had 49 carries, 60 – sorry, 49% of carries, 63% of carries, and 52. In Nick Chubb's absence, Cream Hunt just essentially became Nick Chubb. Week five, 61%. Week six, 60%. Week seven, 82% of carries. And then week eight last week, or excuse me, versus the Raiders, 64% of carries. So two things before we can get into some PFF carries and explosive runs that I found interesting there. When we Now that we have hindsight, we have a, a real sample size to look back on how the Browns navigated their rushing game without Nick Chubb. It went a lot differently than I thought it would. First, Kareem Hunt just became Nick Chubb. And that is some, I thought they, I wrote a piece about how I thought they would distribute the carries more evenly, making, keeping Kareem Hunt's carries between 40 and 50% of the time and sprinkling that elsewhere. They just made, again, Kareem Hunt, Nick Chubb. Didn't see that coming. Secondly, really, and this probably sounds more obvious common sense when you say it out loud, but really all Nick Chubb's absence meant outside of the explosive plays, which we'll get to, it just was less yardage for the Browns offense. And that's, that's really what it is. You take, you have one great player, you remove their input from that offense and the the total output output decreases. We should have saw this coming. Perhaps you did, you two did much more than I, but that is where, that is why Nick Chubb has now both, I think crowned himself as this team's most valuable offensive player. And maybe we'll get in this to this. I'm sure someone will make a comment on, but he probably has secured his payday because this offense just has looked completely different in his absence. And I'm curious when you guys hear those rushing totals just decrease. I mean, again, three straight weeks. Well, you had two weeks of breaking 200 yards rushing three over 150, And then you have weeks where they can't even break a hundred. Now that we have a sample size, you guys of life without Nick Chubb, did this go about according to plan as you thought any surprises for you guys, or are you like Browns fans just happy to have and watch Nick Chubb again on Sundays now that he's coming back? I'll just jump in very quickly to say that I'm not surprised by anything that happened without Nick Chubb. Scott, go ahead. Here's the problem I have with this. It, see, I, Teller and Chubb are both coming back this week. What I really wish we could see mm. is Nick Chubb in this offense running right behind Chris Hubbard this year. Just to like really get a true gauge of how much is Teller, how much is Chubb. I'm not saying Chubb's not a huge part of this offense. It's just like – yeah, Chubb went out, but then Teller went out, what, six plays into the next week. We saw what this offense could do against the Cowboys without Nick Chubb uh, 
with Wyteller still on the field. You know, I put up polls about this, and I know in, in our Football Insiders uh, subscribers have had debates about this. Who is the biggest missing piece of this run offense? Is it Nick Chubb or is it Wyatt Teller? And I don't know if we really have an answer to that yet. I guess both are coming back this week. If everything looks like it did out of the gate against the Cowboys, I guess uh, we could say they were both a huge part. But um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how you gauge, like, how do you gauge Nick Chubb's worth in this versus Wyatt Teller's based on they run like two times like it's a two to one edge on running right versus running left on this team right yeah it's hard that you right if you saw Chubb with no Teller and Chubb by himself because I do think the running back pairing and I'm trying to put a number on this in my own head if Chubb and Hunt together right just as a running back pairing in this offense sort of regardless of who the offensive line is when you have both of them healthy together that's a 10 that's a 10 out of 10. That's as good as it can get. What then is each of them by themselves? Because when you put all the, all of the load on one guy, you're going to decrease that from a 10, regardless of which guy you're pulling out. But I would think that maybe what this showed us is that, is it possible? And again, 10 out of 10 is so high. That's, I mean, it's the best running back combo in the NFL is hunt by himself, a six and a half and Chubb by himself is an eight. You know, that I would think if they, if the exact same thing happened, you lost Kareem Hunt and Wyatt Teller, and you just had Nick Chubb for the last month, I do think they would have been better. I don't think they would have been a hundred times better. But if I'm going to have one of those two guys, I'd rather have Nick Chubb than Kareem Hunt. But I, I don't think it's a gigantic gap. I do think it is a gap, but I do think Scott's point, I, we're, I don't know that we're going to know in the end. And you're going to, we're going to have this weird perception, but. Yes, I am agreeing, Alice, with everything you said of he, Chubb is still, I think, at the top of the list of what really makes this ideal Kevin Stefanski offense go. Yeah, Doug, that's exactly what I'm saying. He's irreplaceable. He's irreplaceable in this offense, point proven by these PFF grades. You kind of teased it, Doug. Um, In the first four weeks with Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt's PFF grade, an average of 73 overall. Um, his highest coming against the Cowboys in 87.8. Um, week two versus the Bengals, 74. Those are his two best games with Chubb. Without Nick Chubb, weeks five through eight, he had a 67 versus the Colts, uh, and then a 68 overall versus the Raiders last week. His two highest grades, you can see this number going down. His PFF grade in four games without Nick Chubb, only 64.5 overall. So that's an overall decrease of nine overall points um, with and without Chubb. And I think that kind of paints the picture you're trying to say, right, Doug? I mean, you, you, you take Nick Chubb off the field, not only are you missing his output, but you're just not getting a, a fresh cream hunt. Like we saw at the end of the week two game versus the Bengals, when you can just bring in another, you know, 8.5 style running back to replace your 9.5 and, and you, you slaughter a team. Now without that, there's nowhere to go. That's what this offense has kind of turned into. And you brought up, obviously it, it leads to the discussion of what does this mean for Nick Chubb's contract. What does it mean for the long-term future? You know, I think we had done a lot of kind of fun stuff in the off season when hunt signed his deal, right? His extension. It's like, Oh, well, Hey, maybe that they got Kareem hunt at a pretty good price. Does that, I think what this means is they need both. I think it's not that it's unique that we have seen teams in the NFL use two running backs. This might be the offense. This might be the team where they might 
maybe they maybe should invest more money in the running back position than anybody in the league at a time when you're kind of questioning, hey, are you overpaying running backs? Maybe this is the offense that wouldn't overpay running backs, that you this is value that, hey, we're going to spend a little less money at receiver. We're going to spend a whatever, but we we invest in the line. We invest in two backs because I do think the point is here, Hunt is good by himself. Chubb is good by himself. But each of them together, they make each other better with the way they run, keeping each other fresh. And there is enough of a workload. And I think it might have been the first got to watch the tape that we did, Ellis, that you said the Browns should lead the league in tailback carries. And that is what they are. And if you're going to do that, you need two pro bowl level guys. And that's what they have. And it's almost like, oh, only one pro bowl level running back isn't enough, which is crazy to say, except I think we might've gotten a little proof of that. I think through the first four games there, that that's, per, that's exactly what we saw. It was a perfect marriage of those two guys and using them in a way that kept them both fresh. It wasn't like, you know, Nick Chubb was the guy and Kareem Hunt was just the, it's kind of added on, you know, a guy who just came out and was on the field when Nick Chubb got tired. It was, they really put thought into how they were using them and it worked. I mean, they, they were, they were crushing it in the run game at that point. And uh, you know, we were all concerned wondering how that was going to work. Were they going to be on the field at the same time? We really didn't see that much uh, when they were both uh, healthy this season, um, just a few times, but rotating them clearly worked and I expect them to get back to that over the second half here. Which is just why I keep saying in every podcast and everything we do, it's just like, I just think there's a chance that this second half offense for the Browns just takes a pretty big jump when you maybe even without Odell, when you pair Baker, maybe, maybe getting it a little bit with these two guys back with Teller back, man, uh, not that we've forgotten because it's what set the tone for the whole season, but we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it for a month. How really excellent this run game can be. Yeah. I'll say this about the Browns offense as a whole. I I'm excited to see what the run game now looks like because of exactly what you're saying, Doug, I'm now, as I'm, we're walking through this Nick Chubb, we miss you uh, deep dive. I, I'm wondering if it just paints a picture for what Odell means to this offense. We'll get five or six games in and we'll just see a, a, a type of drop off that Nick Chubb had with Odell Beckham's absence. But um, that will probably be for a lot later. Got to watch the tape. My last point here on Nick Chubb's value, and really this is going to be the nail in the coffin. Um, if Nick Chubb's agent is listening to this, take this data point right to the negotiating table because I think this seals the case. Um, With Nick Chubb, those first four weeks, the Browns were averaging 6.25 explosive runs per game. That's runs of 12 or more yards. Um, I'm sure Browns fans can just envision Nick Chubb hitting that second level. He's the best in the league at doing it. Maybe him and Dalvin Cook really in that mark, and they do it in different ways, Um, but their yards after contact numbers have to be two of the top best in the league. Without Nick Chubb, that explosive run per game number goes down to 2.25. That's four explosive runs less per game and really tells you exactly what you need to know about how dependent Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt are on each other and married within this offense. When you have both, you're really getting double the amount of explosive runs compared to when Nick Chubb's not there. And that, and that, and you can almost tell, you know, the stats paint the picture, but you can almost just go back and, and think back on these games and you're like, you know what? I do remember Kareem Hunt getting some 10 yard runs and some 11 yard runs and, you know, maybe a 13 yard run there. Have we seen any where Kareem Hunt is 
you know, breaking free for that 30 yard game race, get pushed out of bounds or even a 40 yard score. That's not the type of runner Kareem Hunt is. So it, it, again, it just brings the value of Nick Chubb to about its peak. When you say this offense is literally more explosive, more dangerous and scores more touchdowns with Nick Chubb on the field. You guys, it's that simple. And it's not coincidental. It's schematic, right? And I think that the people listening to this, Browns fans, you'll remember this. I can't remember which game it was, but there was a game where Nick Chubb, I think on a wide zone, had a cutback lane early in the game that he didn't take. And the announcer was like, this cutback lane is there. And then 10 minutes later, that cutback lane was there and Nick Chubb hit it for like a 25-yard run. And in that setup, that seems what Kevin Stefanski wants to do with this run game seems to be what fits right into Nick Chubb, what he wants to do, that he does seemingly has that vision to hit those lanes. And then when he gets to the second level untouched, he'll break some tackles on some linebackers and that it's, it, it really is. And this isn't, I know they're going to have 14 guys in the box without Odell in the game. I mean, we know what's coming. So, but really when you talk about explosive plays, in general, with this offense, it's without Odell, what's the best chance for the Browns to pick up 25 yards in a single play? It's have Nick Chubb hit a cutback lane. It's not have Baker, you know, throw it down the field to Taewon Taylor. So um, I think the explosiveness and Scott, again, that's am I am I is that right that it's not sometimes it's hey, you know, we try to do this. Nick Chubb is a fit, right? He fits Kevin Stefanski particularly, does he not? Oh, yeah. I mean, his ability to, to cut and find the hole, that's what he's looking at in front of him uh, with his blockers now. It's, it's everybody moving, and then he's finding that spot. And the thing with him is he's really, throughout his career, obviously he's been one of the best running backs in the league, but he's very much boom or bust in the fact that he's not a guy who, to this point in his career, you've really been able to count on to get those short yards. But like we've said here, he's he's broken off those huge runs that we all remember. So that that's good. And I'm glad you brought up the 14 guys in the box because Kevin Stefanski might not mind that because even if they're not hitting those, if people are really focusing on Chubb being back and, and this offense, the run game kind of being at full strength, they're still going to move the ball, even if they're not getting those big plays. And the important thing is they're keeping their defense off the field. If they're not hitting those big plays, they're maybe having longer drives and, and Kevin Stefanski even alluded to it earlier this season that he really would rather be able to put together those long drives because as we've seen, this Browns defense is clearly the weak point or the weak spot on this team. And they'd rather not have them on the field a lot. So even if guys are packing it in against the Browns and those drives are taking longer, they're not getting as many of those explosive plays. I think they're still going to be successful and it just might work out in their favor. And we've talked so much about the way the Raiders put the last game away with holding the ball and going on long drives. That's another thing. Sometimes I don't know if the facts bear it out, but if you're on an eight minute March, you can have Chubb in and you can take him out. You could put Hunt in for a couple of plays. You put Chubb back in, keeps your running backs fresh. I mean, you keep marching down the field. All right, Ellis, what's your, uh, what's your second thing that you were uh, surprised about in the first half of the season for the Browns? Yep. Yep. So I wanted to go a little longer on, on the Nick Chubb topic, just because I think that is so important to the second half of this season, but what has been so important for the first half of the season with this Browns team is their ability to generate turnovers, this defense specifically, of course, and how they have both lived on that. And then it has literally swung games for them. Um, just first, some raw numbers on, the, on their turnovers. Um, they've generated 14. They're an even split, seven interceptions, seven fumbles. 
and currently have a plus four turnover differential. So before I wanted to just walk through some of the, the memorable turnovers of this season, but before we get into that, just the uh, running list of the, I call them the turnover creators so far for this season. Uh, Miles Garrett, of course, at the top with five. Then you have BJ Goodson uh, with three, and he has a combination of interception and, and then fumble recoveries. Um, and then we have, I believe, one, two, three, four, five, six guys all with one. Uh, of course, com- um, some safeties, uh, Ronnie Harrison, uh, Sheldrick Redwine interceptions, Denzel Ward interceptions, and Dejo on here, I believe, for the um, Ezekiel Elliott fumble recovery, Carl Joseph with a picks, and then Malcolm Smith with, with an interception. So before we get into some of the more memorable turnovers and just how this team finds these game-swinging moments, you guys, what it this Browns defense and the way they've been able to generate turnovers, you know, like I was here last season, I remember teams kicking a lot more field goals, I guess, versus the Browns. You know, they had some bend but don't break moments. And then, of course, towards the back end of the year, they weren't stopping anyone. I'm thinking more front half of this Browns season. The way this team's generating turnovers, does it surprise you every Sunday? Was it something you guys were expecting with a Miles Garrett jump? Um, what's it been like living and dying with this team and their turnover probabilities? I mean, I do think generally, you know, turnovers are often random, but I don't know at any level of football, and I'm sure I'm wrong. I don't know that I've ever seen a player go for the ball the way Miles Garrett goes for the ball. And even the play against the Raiders where he, with his numb hand that he revealed, his hand is numb, he can't even feel it, swatted at the ball from Derek Carr and like got his hand on the ball and Derek Carr held onto it somehow and made the throw. But Miles Garrett like isn't even really trying. If It's like if he can't get the ball, then he'll tackle the quarterback. But he goes for that ball in a way that that is not random. That is not, hey, luck of the draw. That is a, an absolute weapon. And so that changes the turnover conversation to me about this team that in a lot of other ways, it's like, okay, again, sometimes a quarterback hits you in the gut with the pass. Sometimes, you know, you're a running back's going down and you pry the ball out, whatever. But Miles is different. I really do. Obviously, I think everybody thinks Miles is different. What do you think, Scott? And two things. Miles Garrett, definitely, you can see that there's a, an effort to, to get strip sacks this year that maybe we didn't see or notice as much uh, his first two years. Uh, but just the fumbles overall, if seven fumble recovers this year, they had six all of last year. And, you know, quarterbacks can certainly help you out with interceptions. But with fumbles, there has to be effort there to do that from the defensive standpoint, even more so than maybe interceptions. So to see that the Browns actually, that stuff paying off, that's huge. And, you know, it starts with Garrett and the, and the strip sacks, but the fumbles, I think is what really stood out to me because that's, that's how, that's how defense kind of imposes its will. I mean, the, I was looking at the leaders here that the Ravens have 10 fumbles. They only have four interceptions, but they've recovered 10 fumbles. So um, that's huge. And, you're not so much relying on the quarterback being confused or making a bad throw. You're just going and getting the ball and that's what they've done. And so Ellis, I guess the questions with all this stuff is like, as you said, it's been great. It's like, can you keep it up? Right. I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly it, Doug. And I think that that's a great question and a great starting point with miles Garrett. Cause of course he, he is the number one turnover creator on this team and the ultimate difference maker. And we can, let's sit on miles for a second here because I think comparing him from last year to this year, two things come to mind, which is why I think this will remain consistent. Like, you know, Miles isn't some of this other stuff we may get into. It's like, oh, I don't know. Like you think of the um, 
first pick Joe Burrow had in, in, in Cincinnati, you know, they were marching right down the field and then Denzel, and I guess it, you know, it is Denzel. So you got to give him that credit, but you know, Denzel kind of makes a tip at the ball and it falls into BJ Goodson's belly. You know, those are the type of boom, boom plays where it's like, ah, yeah, I don't know if you're going to get those next time. Um, but what miles Garrett is doing and why it feels so sustainable is even last year, he was on a one sack per game pace. You know, they weren't, it seemed to be the one knock on miles. Like, okay, yeah, he's getting these sacks, but they kind of come when it doesn't matter. And he just, he gets on the stat sheet this year. Like you pointed to Doug, he is making a pointed effort to get after the football. It's like, he just has a, a magnet in that those, the, the paws of his, and it just attracts to the ball because he's getting his hands on the football in such a consistent rate that I don't see why that would change um, from the first eight games to now the second half of the season. That's a technique thing. That's a teaching point. He must have spent some time this summer really emphasizing that. And and it, it's a no-brainer that pass rushers from, from peewees up are taught to go get the football. But th- it's, there's a difference between going through the motions and doing a drill to then having it be your end all in a sack. You know, he's no longer going for the body necessarily. He's not trying to crush and hurt quarterbacks necessarily anymore. Not that he was trying to hurt him before, but you get what I mean, impose his will. He's being tactical with this. He's being finesse almost at times, knowing he can get his hands on the football and change the game that way. Second reason I think it's sustainable, you guys, and we've talked about this on Gotta Watch the Tape before, the way they move miles around. This defense is willing, and and Joe Wood specifically, is willing to move miles around. They don't really care where they put them. They're going to chase the mismatches and the weak links up front in order to create advantageous situations for Miles Garrett. So with those two things being said, I don't see that changing. What does become worrisome is exactly what Scott brought up uh, moments ago is the fumbles. You know, yes, they are effort plays. Yes, you are taught and, and you go through circuits at probably once a week at, at practice on a Wednesday, I'm sure when they got the pads on, of just punching the ball out of the offensive players. They're always going after the football. But like you said, Doug, at the start of this segment, turnovers are unpredictable. Miles Garrett, the four seats become – that's sustainable. I'm unsure if the defense can sustain, you know, the random punch outs of the football that we've seen at times. I know Zeke Elliott's putting the ground, the ball on the ground a lot, but that is not the norm, especially for running backs coming up, you know, Derrick Henry, James Conner, uh, Baltimore, Mark Ingram, Lamar Jackson, these type of teams aren't going to put the ball on the ground as much. Yeah. It's a hard thing to rely on. I mean, everybody, you cover football long enough when you have, when you have a team that is creating turnovers, everybody talks about, oh, they work on it in practice and they do this, whatever. And then you have a year where it's like, well, did you, did you stop working on it in practice or did you work on it just as much and you just didn't get them? You know, I think over the years, a lot of times you'll find, right, that a team has a really good season and then doesn't have quite as good season the next year. And you can go sometimes straight to the turnover category and like, oh, last year they were plus 11 and this year they're minus five. And like what actually changed, you know, I mean, that, that just happens sometimes. So it is a little bit of a dangerous way to live. Like what's the other option with this defense is the other option is like, you know what guys we're I don't know if we can sustain the turnover thing. How about we just stiffen up and start stopping people. And it's like, okay, well we didn't do that for eight games. How's that going to start working? So um, I think this is their best hope. I think this is their best hope. All right. So those are two things that, that surprised you from the first half Ellis. What's the thing that was expected by you? Yep. So we're going to talk about the Browns schedule for a second here. And essentially what didn't surprise me was how weak the Browns schedule ended up being to walk us through that. I want, I, I picked out five questions. I went back and read some of our schedule previews back in whatever that felt like may of 
2014 or whenever that was back when the back when the pandemic schedule came out. Um, but when I went back and read some of those, five things stood out to me. No particular order, but the five biggest questions. First, what NFC East would the Browns be getting? Of course, playing the NFC East schedule that would determine a lot of the strength of schedule. Same question with the AFC South. What AFC South are they getting? Playing the Texans, Titans, and Jags. Next important question, what Big Ben are the Browns getting? There was a lot of unknown about the Steelers, and it all circled around Big Ben. Next one is opening at Baltimore a death sentence, and we wrap up with the fifth question being, will the bye week help or hurt them? Some teams have a bye week too early. They've had momentum, and then they need it at the back end. Some teams have it too late. They've already been beat up. They could have used it way earlier. So working backwards from there, the bye week lands perfectly for the Browns. I'm sure you two would agree there. Perfect timing landing right in the middle. Some of that luck, some of that just kind of makes sense. You split your schedule into quarters, perfect half divider, so on and so forth. Doug, you were all over the, this from the start. Is opening at Baltimore a death sentence? I remember you coming on the, the uh, week one endgame podcast. This is probably going to be the hardest game the Browns have all year. And, and, and that's what we saw. What big Ben are we getting? Pretty clear. They're getting a pretty good Big Ben. So just right there, those first three questions, only one of them really breaks the Browns' way. Is the bye week going to help or hurt them? They got real lucky with where this bye week is. That Baltimore week one game, that was just – it is what it is. It was a death sentence. But this what Big Ben are we getting? This made, I mean, this has made the Steelers the best team in football. Am I right? And that's what almost is going to put the Browns at a 10 or 9 win type of season is they have these extremes – like the Ravens and Steelers, but then they have the pendulum swing the other way with the NFC East and the AFC South. I mean, that's what we're looking at, right? This And Doug, you've been all over it. Again, the Browns are going to beat the bad teams, and there's only so many good teams on this schedule, and that's really why I'm not surprised. The NFC East has been a joke. The AFC South has led every Thursday night boring football game with Titans-Jags, and then you, you can't be shocked how Big Ben looks. We kind of felt like the Ravens were going to be a juggernaut. This is what we sort of expected when we wrote these previews back in May. I will say, I remember, I think it might've been two years ago looking at this. And I think I maybe, this is a common theme for me is I have an idea and I never get around to writing it. And this is one of those that maybe I'm glad I didn't write, but I, I was very interested in the idea of are the Browns rising up as the rest of the division is falling back? Because that was the time when the three other quarterbacks in the division were Joe Flacco, Andy Dalton and Ben Roethlisberger. And it was like, listen, you know, one guy's a Hall of Famer. The other two guys are sort of solid, but they're veterans, but they're on the way down for sure. And then what's next? And it felt like, hey, this might be a perfectly timed opportunity for the Browns. And so here we are now. And it's like, oh, Joe Flacco turned into Lamar Jackson. Oh, Andy Dalton turned into Joe Burrow. And Ben Roethlisberger turned into cyborg Ben Roethlisberger. And he isn't gone anywhere, isn't going anywhere yet. So I do think it's important to keep in mind, and I have a stat I want to run by you guys because I wonder if you know it off the top of your head. Yes, the rest of the Browns' schedule outside the division is very helpful and easy this year. They are in a tough division. That It's one of those things. It's that, I mean, the Steelers and the Ravens are both excellent. And the Bengals, you know, I mean, I'm not so sure. I think it was probably a pretty good thing for the Browns. They got the Bengals twice in the first half of the year. Because yeah. I don't know if I want to start getting like Joey B feeling his way and like the Bengals maybe getting slightly better. But they are in a tough division. So they certainly could be in a world where, hey, you don't have to play for against Baltimore and Pittsburgh. So every discussion about their week schedule, I think, has to center around 
that to at least a degree. The other 10 games we know are pretty easy. But do you guys know off the top of your head what the, unless you were planning to do this, Ellis, the, the record of the AFC North versus the NFC East this year? Do you guys know what the overall record is? I looked it up. Anybody want to guess? That in front of me. Probably undefeated. 7 0 1. All the time. 7 0 1. It's the Steelers oh. and the Bengals, but also, guess what? <clears throat> By the way, as you look to the Bengals in the second half, that's the only East game the Bengals have played so far. They have not played Washington, the Giants, or Dallas. So if you're looking for a Joey B revival, the Steelers, meanwhile, have played three. The Steelers only have one of those left, and the Baltimore and Cleveland each have two games left. But we all know it. But you know what? Last year, when they had Jimmy G and Nick Bosa and Russell Wilson and Sean McVay and Kyler Murray and their NFC opponent was the NFC West, they deserve this. They earned a crappy schedule against the NFC East. So that is as bad as we thought. I mean, Scott, it's like, can you remember a game where the East, well, the East hasn't beaten anybody. But by the way, the Steelers are taking advantage of it. The undefeated, are they going to go 16-0 and 0 Steelers, are taking advantage of it just as much as the Browns are. So sometimes that's the way the schedule falls. And I think you can also point to just the defenses the Browns have played and when they've played them. Uh, and they've gotten lucky a couple of times with the Colts and the Redskins, or not the Redskins, Washington. Uh, they were without some key players uh, on defense in both those games. And they've, you know, they've gotten the Bengals twice. They're going to play the Texans. They're bad. The, the Cowboys, horrible defense. The Raiders uh, have not been good on defense, even though they lost that game. So uh, they're going to get the Jaguars. So that's really broken their way this season as well. Um, and really that, I mean, Indianapolis and Washington, I think those were two of the, the better defenses that they beat this season. And again, they, you know, they just kind of got lucky in who was available that game. Yeah. Basically no chase young, right. For Washington and no Darius Leonard, Darius Leonard. For, for Indianapolis. I mean, that is two huge breaks. Yeah. And Doug, I think you made a great point when you proposed swapping the, the Steelers and Bengals game. I mean, imagine if the Browns had to play the Steelers in week seven and then got the Bengals in week 17 for a game that probably had some playoff implications or something, you know, that, that's a, a much tougher break right now than when you did get the Bengals both in the top half. I think that's a great observation. I want to end with this. There's a real reality where really the only Brown, the only good Browns win could come against that Colts team. And like you just mentioned, no Darius Leonard that game, that was a, a nice overall complete win uh, made Phillip rivers. We almost questioned if he still had it and rivers has had some nice weeks since then point being this, the Browns have five games left versus teams with a losing record and at five and three that puts them right at 10 and six if they beat the teams they should beat and then lose to the good teams they're going to be a 10 and 16 with perhaps the only team with a winning record they beat is the Colts that's a possible reality we've talked about it at length before but I just think saying it out loud repeating it and and now that we're at this halfway mark it's it, it's a real plausible reality that this this Browns team could be a playoff team despite the only real memorable win not memorable but you know versus versus another quality playoff team coming against that Indianapolis Colts squad. They got the seventh easiest strength of schedule this season. So that's, you know, right there, that's working in their favor. That's total one through 16. Right. Seventh easiest. Okay. Which again, I don't know if you ask people, people when I said, I don't know, are they first on Mm -hmm. easiest schedule? Cause it does feel like it's really, it it is really easy. Um, I do think in the end, I think they might get, I mean, I'm again, I've said all along, I don't, they lost a good teams. What are you going to do? I would be very curious to see if they can get one of these. You know, Tennessee 
It's like we have Tennessee down as a playoff team as one of the good teams. Again, Joe Burrow just took them apart. So that's out there. You know, the Ravens like moving the ball, you know, it's, I don't, they're not, I don't know that the Ravens look as good now as they did in week one. And maybe just because they don't, they don't get to play the Browns defense every week. So I'm curious about that game. And I do think in the end, this will be a wonderful off season discussion. If we spend the entire off season saying, how good was the Browns 10 and six playoff year? How good was it really? I'm here. Great. Let's talk about it. We can break it down and what it means for next year. But I do think sort of when they went seven, eight and one, the year they fired Hugh and then Greg Williams and Freddie Kitchens took over. Mary Kay was very strong at that time of saying, I think people might be getting too excited about this team because I think what they did in the second half might've been based on playing bad teams and playing bad defenses. So that's that I think it's a worthy thing to keep in mind as we evaluate the future, but also 10 and six in the playoffs is a heck of a lot different than seven, eight and one, you know, and if we're getting all excited off seven, eight and one for the following year, if we're getting excited because they went 10 and six and made the playoffs, that's a little different discussion. All right. That was good stuff. What surprised and what didn't surprise Ellis from the first half. We'll be back after the break with what surprised and what didn't surprise Scott Patsko from the first half of this Brown season. You're listening to got to watch the tape from cleveland.com. Back on got to watch the tape. You guys, of course, are listening to our orange and Brown talk podcast five days a week. Again, the post game podcast is a banger. You want to be part of that thing. Uh, great stuff. We have our picks pod on Friday. Terry Pluto drops in once during the week. Scott and Ellis and I are also on that podcast, usually at least once a week. Uh, Dan and Mary Kay just do an excellent job breaking everything down on there. So make sure when you're, you get subscribed to this feed so you get the Tuesday and Friday, got to watch the tape, and you get the Orange and Brown talk. We did take last Friday off because people are allowed to have lives. But now we're back on this Tuesday, and we'll be, we'll be back again on Friday as we dig in even more on this Browns-Houston-Texans game on Sunday. But for now, two surprises. One thing that wasn't a surprise from Scott Pasco. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, I, I came up with, like, way too many unexpected things that, that I could have included. And some of them we've talked about, like, you know, Miles Garrett rushing more over the right tackle this year. I think you know, we've gotten into that. Baker Mayfield's drop in play-action percentage, uh, completion percentage on play-action plays, I think, has been a surprise. But I wanted to talk about something we haven't gotten to yet. So I wanted to start with Jedrick Wills and his issues as a run blocker. Uh, every season, uh, Pro Football Focus does their NFL draft guide. A lot of websites do this. Their 2020 edition, they have you know a bunch of superlatives like you know most fun to watch, sleeper, things like that. Uh, best off, for offensive linemen, they had best in pass blocking, uh, best in zone blocking, best in run blocking was Jedrick Wills. Uh, in college, he graded at 90.1 as a run blocker, 87.3 in zone blocking. So you look at that and you think, wow, this guy's a perfect fit to come into the Browns and and just dominate. And and really, the praise for his run block blocking uh, around the draft is kind of universal. Um, like Bleacher Report said he had a mean streak and he was a f- true finisher in the run game. PFF called him one of the nastiest run blockers in the country, but that hasn't really translated to the NFL. His blocking grade this season is 45.2 uh, against the Raiders. He had his worst grade yet, 39.6. Technically, according to PFF data, they didn't run behind him once against the Raiders, although they did run left and technically kind of ran his way. Um, if you go back and look at the tape, uh, but as far as him making a, a key block that, that sprung a run or something like that there, they pretty much didn't give him anything. So um, I wanted to pause there real quick though, and see what you guys thought about Jedrick Wills so far this season. Cause I know LSU, 
had brought this up on a previous podcast about how you were surprised he was getting those kind of grades this season um, and to see what you guys thought. Well, I mean, yeah. this is, this goes back to, right. I mean, this goes back to the discussion that we had on this podcast before they run right all the time. I mean, is this, is this why is, is Jedrick Willis, why they don't run left? Yeah, that's, that's what I I've gathered from watching the tape on um, just what Bill Callahan has been trying to do because what, what this, it started with um, it's kind of funny when studying the run game of this Browns team, you watched it with great awe at first because I expected as all did is just a lot of zone running schemes. And then you started realizing that they were running man-to-man schemes. They were running gaps. They were running counters. And in all of the, the nuance of a run game, Jedrick Will's inability to have a, a power on the left side to hold that down kind of got lost in the shuffle. So then you had to go back and, and, and watch things more closely. And you started realizing a dependency on this team running right. And the Steelers game, I think, is the best example of how a, a defensive front was able to manipulate that against them. It took away the left bootleg that Baker Mayfield is so successful at that Kevin Spancy got used to calling because they could set that edge so far outside Jedrick. And then they, the Browns weren't running left anyway. So they were, they were really making the Browns play left-handed and that comes down to, to Jedrick will. So Doug, to answer your question, yes, I, this is, I think on Jedrick right now until um, we can see it some different run variances to the left. Perhaps Nick Chubb coming back helps that. Um, but for me, I, they're not running left right now because their, their left tackle isn't getting the job done. And Scott, if you would have guessed, okay, we have a top 10 pick left tackle who played right tackle in college. Here he comes. He's going to be relied upon. Would you have imagined that he would have been a good run blocker as a rookie and struggled in pass protection? Is that part of your surprise here? Yeah, because Joe Thomas led me to believe uh, Jedrick Wills would have an easier time getting into this scheme than maybe another scheme. Uh, when I talked to Thomas, like, I think it was before the draft, and we were kind of going over all the different tackles the Browns might draft, and he talked about coming into his own blocking scheme and how uh, when, when Joe Thomas had to go through that, it was, you know, you're, you're just drilling down on these techniques over and over and learning them as opposed to learning so many different various types of run blocking you're really just focused on one thing and trying to become a master at it and just the focus of that would maybe put make Jedrick Wills have an easier time but he's actually been the best pass blocker among those top four guys who were drafted Mekhi Becton Tristan Wirfs and Austin Jackson I can't remember the other guy Andrew Thomas Andrew Thomas so he's done well in that regard uh but just when it comes to run blocking it's just been surprising and you mentioned uh I think I had mentioned earlier how they were running on a kind of a two to one ratio to the, to the right this season. Some sites track like direction of run and they, it does vary. Again, it's, you can kind of debate over who you're actually running behind if you're running left, but actually it's the, you know, right guard pulling and creating that hole or that kind of thing. But just overall, the Browns are running less to the left, um, whichever way you want to, you want to slice it. And in Minnesota, uh, Stefanski, there wasn't that kind of difference. They really ran evenly both directions, maybe skewed a little bit to the left, but it was like 187 to the left, 170 to the right, that kind of thing. So it was really minimal. Here, though, it's just been a big difference. And obviously, you want to run behind uh, Teller because he's done so well. Uh, and Conklin, who actually isn't blocking as well as he did in Tennessee, but he comes here with you know a good reputation as a run blocker. So that's just been, you know, 
they just they just haven't changed. Like, even with Chris Hubbard in there, who has not done nearly as well. I know he's getting a lot of praise from his teammates. He hasn't done nearly as well as Wyatt Teller. They've still continued to do that. They're still running right. So when they have run left, again, you've seen, you know, it's Petonio kind of double teaming or it's, it's him pulling or it's Wyatt Teller or whoever the right guard is pulling out there and kind of, kind of going through that block. There was a play against the Raiders in the first quarter that, um, that ran left. Kareem Hunt was credited with an 11 yard run behind left tackle. But what actually happened was Wills totally missed his block. Petonio picked it up and created the hole. There was a Kareem Hunt touchdown against the Cowboys where Teller pulled to create the hole and Wills was kind of yanked down by his defender on the play. And that defender actually ended up being the guy who brought Hunt down right as he crossed the goal line. So you kind of go back and look at Wills throughout the season. You're going to see some of those plays where he's having issues, maybe hitting a moving target, you know, pass blocking, sitting in front of a guy, not so much, but making sure that he's getting, getting the right block. And really it's more going right. You know, if he has to kind of just build the edge while someone else comes around from the, from the times I focused on him, that seems fine. But the Browns clearly have more confidence running the other direction. And the bottom line here isn't to say that Jedrick Wills was a bust or the Browns made a mistake in drafting him. It's just surprising that a guy who came out of college supposed to be a beast in the run game just, hasn't been that way, uh, hasn't had that big of an impact on the Browns run game. In Jedrick Will's defense, is this not true that I think has Tristan Wirfs been pretty good and Makai Becton's been pretty good, but right before the draft, I and my infinite wisdom had come around to the idea of Andrew Thomas from Georgia is the guy for the Browns. And then he got picked by the Giants at four and the Browns didn't have a shot at him. And Andrew Thomas has been awful. So it's like, the, at least he's not Andrew Thomas. That like of all the guys, it's almost like reverse order. I think, you know, I think Becton, Becton might be, I know that I was watching the Monday night game when the Jets were losing and they were like, Makai Becton's the best player on the Jets offense, right? And that's the guy, the Browns could have picked him instead of Wills. That seemed like more of a boomer bust pick. But I don't know if you had the PFF like rookie tackle grades, but man, if Andrew Thomas was here, Maybe he's just in the vortex of New York awfulness, but he's not been good so far. Yeah. So with, with Thomas there, because it's, it's important to mention, he just had, right, like you said, he just hasn't been good. And with Becton, it's, you haven't seen a, a, enough to know, because he's the type, when you say boomer bust, that's the type of career where you need five years to flush out whether Becton's going to keep everything on the straight and narrow with him, both with, with his size you know, his weight was an issue coming out. Those take – that takes a, a, a career to figure out if it's going to be going well. And then with Tristan Wirfs, he's still on the right side. He's still playing right tackle. So, really, comparing um, him and Wills won't be something we'll continue to do as their careers go on because he's just going to stay on the right side there. So, I think, Scott, what you're pointing out is really important for, for Browns fans to, to hear. We're not saying this because it, it's over for Wills as a run blocker and the Browns are never going to run right. Perhaps – uh, by the second half of the season, you see weeks 13, 14, 15, stuff like that. Maybe they are running left more. And this is just we're seeing uh, a rookie needing a full body of work to become the run blocker, blocker he was in college. That, to me, that would not make any surprise. And if you're going to bet on anyone, you're going to bet on Bill Callahan developing Jedrick Wills here. That's where the safe money is. All right. What is your second thing that you have been surprised about, Scott Pasco, by this season? All right, first half of the podcast, Ellis was talking a lot about explosive plays on offense. Um, the surprising thing to me has been this defense's ability to limit those kinds of plays in 2020 because 
man, if you saw last season, the Browns were really bad at it. They just explosive plays all over the place. Um, and when we say explosive plays, we're talking um, anything over 10 to 15 yards. It depends on what website you might be looking at the tracks it, um, depending on like 15, a running play of 15 yards or more, basically big plays. And you kind of know that when you see it, but uh, sharp football ranks, the Browns rank the Browns 31st in explosive run plays and limiting them. So they were really bad. They actually had the most uh, last season, but the Panthers actually had a higher percentage. So they ended up 31st and then they were 19th in explosive pass plays allowed football outsiders also tracks this, um, but they kind of focus on the defensive line and look at second level yards which are runs of five to 10 yards and then open field yards, which is anything over 10 yards. And the Browns were 30th in both of those. And as you remember, the Browns had a ton of uh, injuries last year on pretty much every level of the defense. And, you know, those explosive plays just kind of highlighted all that. So this season it's turned around sharp football has them ranked fifth in limiting explosive runs, eighth in limiting explosive pass plays. They're up to 14th and second level yards, but they're third in open field yards. I mean, try to think of a huge, a huge running play against the Browns this season. You're probably going to have a hard time. It's just not something that's happened a lot. And when we think about the Browns linebackers and the safeties this season, that's what makes this really a surprise because it seems like week after week on this podcast, we talk about how poorly those guys are playing, but they're not, if people are getting five, five yards past the line of scrimmage or, you know, they're, they're, they're cutting it down. And we've seen, you know, as much crap as we give Andrew Sandejo uh, against the Raiders, I don't know, it was at least twice where he shot in, and, and took someone down after a, maybe a two or three yard gain. It was, it was kind of surprising actually, because I think he leads the team in missed tackles, but again, they're limiting those, those big plays. So, I mean, in this season, there really hasn't been a lot of successful things you could point to on this defense outside of Miles Garrett and maybe Denzel Ward, but there's takeaways obviously, but just limiting the, the big plays overall, has just really been a surprise for me. Just very quickly on this, I'm, I'm trying to think about squaring the idea of the way we have talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, the safeties and the linebackers with this idea. Is it possible that they input the data incorrectly? I don't, I, this does not sound right to me. Can we get the number crunchers? Did you mean to type in like they gave up two big plays and it actually was 20? Because this doesn't make any sense to me. It feels like I thought Andrews and Dejo gave up 11 big plays himself every game. I guess we're no, I, it's weird. But, but if you look at Andrews and Dejo's PFF grade, it's terrible, right? I, so I don't, I just spit on my camera. I'm so, <laughs> my little webcam, I got so excited, spittle. When I said Sandejo, it flew out of my mouth and it went right on my camera and wiped me out. I was all smudged up for a second. I was getting worked up. I, that's what works me up. Zendejo! I, I yell it in my sleep sometimes. Ellis, does this, does this sound right to you, Ellis? Does this make sense? Doug, oftentimes my role on this podcast is when you're confused and flailing and spitting all over your podcast camera, I come in and I make it less murky for you and I clean this up. So let me, other than cleaning the spit off your screen, let me help you here, okay? This makes, <laughs> this makes a lot of sense to me for this reason. It, it, we talked about it with the Browns run defense versus both the Raiders and the Steelers. It was not that the Browns were necessary. It really depends on your definition of getting ran all over because it wasn't that they were like Scott saying, giving up big runs that you felt like the Raiders and the Steelers just had better athletes. Like, Oh gosh, the Browns just can't catch that player. It was the way in which they were just methodically doing so 22 carries for James Conner, 
101 yards, you know, 30 carries for Josh Jacobs, 102 yards, something like that, 110, I think he had. Those aren't outrageous averages. Those aren't long hopping plays, but it's this been this defense's inability to stop third and short and to get off the field on fourth down. I don't have it in front of me, but I feel like this team has not forced a turnover on downs all season. Um, and then it's plays that come to mind too. Now, when we're talking about the secondary and this passing defense, it's the plays where you have a guy just standing by themselves in the, in the back of the end zone. Um, I believe the Ravens had it once uh, the Cowboys had it once might've been a two point conversion, but you know, those got to have it plays when a guy's just running alone, you know, that it's a, it's a three yard gain because they're in the red zone and they have goal to goal situations, but it's miscommunication for a touchdown. And, and though touchdowns aren't considered explosive plays because of, of yard situations, often it's the most explosive play in football, score the ball. Right. So this team is not giving up the long chunks, but it has been concerning specifically with their last uh, two outside of a, a team with the Bengals who just abandoned the run game uh, Raiders Steelers, the way that teams are able to just slowly get down the field at them. It's draining and it works. And that's why it can make sense of Scott's not, no big plays, not theory proven here in the data. This team has so far not done that. I think miles Garrett has a lot to do with that eliminating potential big plays because he's getting to the quarterback pressures, but they just can't get off the field on third and short and fourth down when they need to. I guess that would make sense. It's like, if you're trying to drop back and let a long, a deep route develop, there's a decent chance. Miles Garrett's going to get there to blow it up. And then at some point you say, why are we doing this? Why are we even, why are we taking a seven step drop and giving miles Garrett the opportunity? Let's just run a screen. Let's just run a little three-step thing to the tight end and move the ball. But I do think also it goes back a little bit. Again, the, the thing that is fresh in people's heads off the bye week still is the, the Raiders putting the game away with the long drive when miles wasn't, when miles was hurt. Right. And I think we've talked a lot. This has sort of been my theory of the defense all year is like, just if you don't give up big plays and you make them go 12 plays for a touchdown drive, that's 12 chances for miles Garrett to do something to force a turnover or get a sack. And all of a sudden you're in long yardage, that kind of thing. And that theoretically when miles is himself and when miles is healthy makes sense to me. And I guess it, it is, I guess some of the things it feels like the, when they have mistakes and breakdowns in the secondary, it's like you can remember them all. That's why they're, I guess they're in our head. But I guess it's good news, Scott. What you're saying is it's not like it happens five times a game where the safeties are staring at each other and guys are running down the field for a 40 yard pass. Yeah, I mean those, those situations are still bad, and they've really and they've they've hurt the the Browns. You can go back to Week One and against the Ravens, and those kinds of things are happening. But and I think we talked about this on the podcast. What you don't want to see happening, I guess, if you're the Browns, is that the, the Raiders game becomes the norm where teams right. who have to run on you can run on you, and they're converting those second and third, second and four. They're getting the three and four yards they need, and they're keeping the clock going, and they're just keeping that defense on the field. And, I mean, the weather just throws a big monkey wrench into things. Not having Miles Garrett out there really kind of messed things up. But I think if they can get away from that and get off the field uh, against the Texans, I think maybe you, you're in a better spot as a defense and giving up big plays is bad, but you know, keeping your defense on the field, right, this defense right. on the field for long drives. I don't know. Is that worse? <laughs> it might be. Yeah, Scott, I think it's a great point because that is clearly, it was clearly John Gruden's game plan. And like you said, you, you mentioned it, the weather probably had a lot to do with that. I'm convinced I was saying it beforehand, that was going to be Gruden's game plan, regardless of whether he was just going to keep this defense on the field because really it's like, being able to just take what you want, you know, what's the rush of scoring when you can control it 
and dictate your pace. And that really, and we might be answering the, the question in a roundabout way here, is almost more demoralizing. You know, if you are living off turnovers, but give up a few big plays every once in a while, it's like, okay, you can live with that. But if you're just being pushed backwards time after time and not allowing to, for the Browns to do what they want to do, which is control the football and, and run the football, you're, you're really killing two parts of this team at the same time. You're, you're not allowing them to run and you're keeping their worst unit on the field. That might be, it's going to take discipline, but that might be what this next stretch of, you know, the Texans, the Eagles and the Titans try to do. The, the, the blueprint might be out. All right. I got a game plan for Sunday against the Texans. Browns win the toss. They defer. Kick off to the Texans. Texans come out first down from the 20-yard line. They hand off to Duke Johnson, and the Browns let them score. It prevents the demoralizing Deshaun Watson march. It just gets the defense off the field, and now you're, you're down 7 nothing, and you're getting Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt back on the field. We, we just... Because otherwise, I mean, Deshaun's in there. So, oh, we could have drafted Deshaun. So I just think, is that is that where we are, Scott? That's like that's like third level chess here. It's like you can't get tired if you're not on the field. You know? <laughs> yeah, the uh, offense. It's like Brown, the Browns. You won. Uh, yeah, they win the the time of possession fifty two to eight in like a sixty three to fifty six game because they just take a knee every time the Texans get the ball. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if the Browns have the Browns would have the ball more and we've learned through these first eight games that the Browns need to score 30 points a game to win. So maybe that works. I think, I think what you have to do to make this work, you got to go for two every time. That way you're staying ahead of the Texans. I'll ask Stefanski about it. I'll ask Stefanski about it. See what he thinks. Are we sure we, are we sure it's in the Browns best interest to unlock Duke Johnson and have a Duke Johnson revenge game, Doug? I don't know know about that, man. That's true. Duke, you ran, you had four carries for 320 yards. You didn't break a single tackle. They just laid down. How did it feel to come back to Cleveland? Okay, so that's, I mean, that's an interesting, there is some of this stuff, Scott, with this defense. This defense is 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 hard to figure out sometimes, right? I, like on one hand, it's easy because they have two good players and nine question marks. But on the other hand, it's like, well, they give this up, but they don't give that up. They're good at this or bad at this. They, when you look at it at the end, they give up a lot of points. But I do feel like we've talked a lot about this defense, and it's not very good. But it's kind of interesting not very good, at, at least, Scott, right? Yeah, I think the takeaways make it that way. Miles Garrett makes it that way. It's, you know, bend but don't break. And they haven't proved that that works against good teams yet. And they got burned by the Raiders with that, but I think we'll probably look back at the end of the season. We're going to look at that Raiders game and maybe throw it out <laughs> just because of the circumstances. I think we're going to think of that Ravens game in week one told us more than maybe the, the Raiders game did uh, in week eight. All right. So what's the thing that you did expect about this Brown season so far? All right. So like a favorite pastime of Browns fans and media, because I'm guilty of this too. The last couple of years has been trying to predict who the Browns third receiver will be behind Beckham and Landry. And it's amazing how pointless that has been. Can you guys name who the number three receiver was for the Browns last season? Do you guys have any idea? Um, Kenny Britt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't even got to guess. You're never going to guess. I mean, Beckham and Landry had 130 targets each. They each ranked in, like, the top ten in the NFL. Callaway. You mean Callaway? No. Damian <laughs> Ratley was third on the team with 22 targets. Uh, Antonio Callaway had 15, Carol Hodge and Higgins both had 10. 
But we don't think of any of those guys as like the number three guy on the team last year. And the thing is, we still got into that whole debate this past offseason, knowing that Kevin Stefanski used three wide receiver sets as little as almost anybody. He, as expected, only three teams have used 11 personnel less than the Browns this season, who were at 46%. So you got Beckham and Landry, who are the only great wide receivers on this team with more than 15 targets. And Beckham hasn't played since the first snap of week seven. And he's still, you know, still way up there. So Higgins has 15 targets over five games, but nine of those came in the last two weeks. Hodge has six targets. And then Donovan Peoples-Jones has four targets, including one very memorable one. But I think getting into this whole debate about the third wide receiver maybe overlooks what the third wide receiver is supposed to be on this team. Because yes, you need depth. You need obviously more than just two receivers. We've learned that this season when Beckham got hurt, but it's more important from maybe a depth point than maybe from a schematic point. Cause Hodge over four games, he ran 73 routes, but he's been a run blocker 70 times. So it's almost, it's almost even. And I think that is really what the third wide receiver on this team is, you know, Higgins really got a lot of run when they, when he was out testing free agency and fans wanted him to come back. And when he finally did, it was like, Oh, well, they found their third wide receiver. And then, you know, Cadero Hodge ends up getting those snaps and we've seen why, because he's so, so good as a blocker. Austin Hooper, Kareem Hunt, Harrison Bryant, those are your third, fourth and fifth targets on the Browns. And if you didn't see that coming, then you probably weren't paying attention to anything we wrote during the off season or anything Kevin Stefanski's done uh, previously. So are we going to not do it anymore? Is this officially I'm, established that I'm given putting a his, cap on it, <laughs> but especially in the Stefanski offense, right? I mean, if it was useless before, I mean, it's especially a useless conversation now, right, Scott? I think so because look, Richard Higgins is going to end this season with a decent number of targets and catches because he's probably going to be, he's going to see more passes come his way over the last eight games and Hodge and people's Jones. We don't, you know, he probably won't get on the field much at all. So we're going to get to the end of the season and people are going to talk about Higgins being a huge impact on the team, but it's not as the third receiver. It's basically as the number two guy next to Landry. And so, I don't know, Scott's not surprised by that. Ellis, are, are you surprised at all? Did you think there would be any more of a role for a third receiver or did this fit your expectations given especially what Kevin Stefanski likes to do? No, this fit um, my expectations specifically with, uh, Kevin Stefanski, just with him coming over from Minnesota, this was, uh, you could see this coming for the most part. What I think was interesting is the debate from last year, not that we need to get into that, but, you know, you just when you see two receivers like Jarvis and Odell, I can see why people become infatuated with who the number three guy is going to be. You anticipate a lot of one-on-one opportunities and whatnot, and the fact that didn't even materialize, uh, I think that says a lot about just what Jarvis and Odell mean and a target share. It's going to be interesting um, two things quickly. First, I wonder where Odell Beckham Jr. will rank in total targets on this team at the end of the year. Just and I will say a lot about this team's passing success or identity or game plan uh, over these next eight games. Um, because if he ends, I mean, geez, let's say he ends third on this team in targets, even fourth. Um, that's going to be a cause for concern, especially third. Third would be a real cause for concern. Um, and then second, I think w- what we haven't mentioned yet is this is just a, a big, um, or at least a first eight-game crowning of Harrison Bryant. That would, be, that would be my answer for what I didn't expect. I know Dan Lobby was all over the, the Kareem Hunt, third receiver island. Um, I, 
I didn't Austin Hooper obviously would have been a fine guess, but clearly it's been Harrison Bryant. He's been the the third guy on this team uh, who comes to fantasy's both has really trust Baker Mayfield's been able to find, and then he's able to, to crush one-on-one coverage. So really the third receiver on this team is Harrison Bryant, though. He's, he's a, the number two tight end now with Austin Hooper back. All right. Anything else? Kareem you Hunt does lead. Good. I was going to say Kareem Hunt does lead the team in, in receiving touchdowns. He's third with 24 targets. Hooper's got 31 and Bryant's got 21. So it's, it is kind of punched up a little bit. All right, so that's what has surprised us and not surprised us through the first half of this Brown season. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll just come back with one quick thought each as we evaluate this first half for the Cleveland Browns and start looking ahead to their ninth game of the season against the Houston Texans. You're listening to Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. All right, we're back on Gotta Watch the Tape, and I'll start off with my quick thought. I am excited to see Deshaun Watson in First Energy Stadium. He's just tremendous. It's not a surprise to me that he's been this good, but I do, I would like Browns fans when they get ready to watch this game on Sunday, when they're watching the Texans, you're going to be infatuated with Deshaun Watson as you should be. But the Texans are a reminder of how a franchise quarterback is not enough on his own when you screw up the rest of it right now. And this is not, you know, a perfect grading system, but Deshaun Watson is sixth in PFF grades among starting quarterbacks this year. I just want to run down the top five real quick. Aaron Rodgers is first. He's six and two. Russell Wilson, second, six and two. Tom Brady, third, six and three. Patrick Mahomes, fourth, eight and one. Josh Allen, fifth, seven and two. Great examples of quarterbacks leading great teams. And then Deshaun Watson is sixth and his team is two and six. So don't let yourself get caught up only in Baker Mayfield for Baker Mayfield versus Deshaun Watson on Sunday. Everybody in the world, everybody with eyes would take Deshaun Watson over Baker Mayfield. But it is not a mono a mono quarterback battle. Who is the best team? Who has built a structure around their quarterback? Who has some offensive pieces? Who has now a coach? They, they don't have a coach. They don't have a GM. They're going to have to get that. Just remember that as you pine, because you're going to do it. I get it. It's part of what happens. Baker has been inconsistent. We all know that. As you pine for Deshaun Watson, let's just remember that you actually are not pining to be a Houston Texans fan. You're just imagining what Deshaun Watson would be like if you were if he was in a better structure here with the Cleveland Browns. Scott, we'll go to you. What do you have as your final thought? Uh, I'm interested to see what Jacob Phillips can do. He uh, was among the many players who it looks like uh, are, are getting back on the field uh, this week. And again, we've talked a lot about how the linebackers struggled and a young guy, athletic guy who did not perform particularly well when he was on the field. He's only had 38 snaps this year, but I have to think that they're going to give him a shot to see what he can do because you're only getting so much out of BJ Goodson. Uh, Malcolm Smith is clear. They only want him on the field when it's a passing situation. Mac Wilson has really struggled. Uh, since he's come back. So Jacob Phillips is like the last card Joe Woods has to play. And maybe we'll see that maybe a little more than we have uh, this week. Ellis, what you got? Yeah. I want to put a bow on Doug's final thought and then a, a cherry on top of it all with, for my final thought. I think it's a great point about structure, Doug. Um, Aaron Rodgers, of course, now playing within LaFour's offense as a, as a decent uh, a defense in front of him. Pat Mahomes playing with Andy Reid and everything they've created. Russell Wilson now being able to let Russ cook as the narrative was through the first half of the season and DK Metcalf and whatnot. 
Um, and then Josh Allen, they went out and traded for Stefan Diggs. He's completely changed that wide receiver room and hit their weapons there. So it is important to point out that infrastructure matters um, and it's not just the quarterback. And I think to that point now, for me, it's all eyes on Nick Chubb in the buildup to this game. Uh, Mary Kay Cabot reported yesterday that Nick Chubb was wearing a, a full knee brace at practice yesterday, despite looking really well, fresh, and like the old Nick Chubb. I think it'll be interesting to monitor uh, just how Chubb looks in those early portions of practice. Does he play with that that knee brace on? I don't know if that's uh, been confirmed or not yet. Um, and that is one of those things where infrastructure matters. Nick Chubb is not just a, a replacement level running back. He is a weapon uh, of the caliber of Dalvin Cook and Alvin Kamara and Christian McCaffrey and whatnot. And the Browns get him back this week. So Browns fans monitor that. And to Doug's point, just appreciate the, the weapons that this organization has put around Baker Mayfield as we build this Sunday. All right. That's your Tuesday. Got to watch the tape. Make sure you come back on Friday for another dose of it. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash Browns and just get subscribed, get subscribed. So you don't miss anything we're doing here on our, uh, our Browns podcast world. So thanks as always to Scott and to Ellis for their interesting analysis and all their work on that. I'm Doug Maurice. We'll catch you guys later. Thanks for diving in on gotta watch the tape.